Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, everybody. Uh, this morning, we are going to start a short series of sermons uh, about what the resurrection of Jesus means for people like us. We, of course, celebrated Easter last week, and it's good to be reminded that the resurrection wasn't just something that happened to Jesus a long time ago. It was the beginning of God's new world. And that means that the resurrection has profound and concrete meaning both for our lives and for the life of the whole world right now. The resurrection of Jesus, uh, it isn't some abstract doctrine that's floating around in the cloud somewhere. It is, among other things, the propulsive energy that drives people like us to get our hands dirty working alongside God in this world. So we're going to start this morning in that series by looking at a part of Paul the Apostle's letter to his friends at the church in Corinth. So I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 5:16 through 6:2 for us, and you can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from 2 Corinthians. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we just sang together uh, in those beautiful words that you would unveil your beauties to our sight. And so what we're asking now is that this thing that we have sung together, that we would find it to be true in our experience, that, that you would be happy to meet us through this word that we have read and heard together, that we'll talk about together that you'd be happy to meet us in whatever place that we're in, whether we're in faith or outside of faith, whether we feel far from you or close to you. Father, meet us in the place where we are and show us the beauty of Jesus and change us by it. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I, uh, <clears throat> I learned how to play uh, the game of Monopoly when I was pretty young. Uh, one of my older cousins, Brian, uh, taught me and my brother how to play. And so once we learned how to play, uh, we'd often break that game out when the two families got together and all of the cousins, which were all guys, not one girl in the cousins, all of the guys would get together and we would play the game of Monopoly long into the night until someone won, or more often than that, um, until a fist fight broke out. Um, I'm not kidding about that, but this is a different story. Um, 
And Brian was a by-the-book kind of guy. And what I mean by that is uh, that when he taught us how to play Monopoly, he taught us how to play according to the rules, exactly as they were printed in the instruction sheet that came in the box. I'm pretty sure that the official rules for Monopoly have not changed since 1935. Uh, And we played by those rules. If there was ever a question, if there was ever a disagreement about uh, the rules, we got them out for reference, and that's just how I learned how to play the game. And that's also why I can remember so vividly the first time I played Monopoly with somebody else, with my next-door neighbor and with his family. Um, And I remember it because whenever someone landed and had to pay income tax or had to pay some kind of fee of any kind, they would make you put the money in the middle of the board instead of giving it to the banker. Um, And the money went there in the middle of the board. And whenever someone landed on free parking, they were able to get all of that money that had been piled in the middle of the board. And this was incredibly distressing to me. (laughs) This was incredibly scandalous to me because, and I hope this doesn't upset some of you, that is a completely phony made-up rule. (laughs) It is not in the rules of Monopoly. And it didn't matter how much I protested to them. It didn't matter how much I told them this was the wrong way to go. They insisted this is how you play the game. It's our house rules. So, of course, since then I've learned there's a lot of weird house rules that get used in playing Monopoly, like getting 400 bucks if you land directly on go or getting 500 bucks if you roll snake eyes. And over the years I've learned that there is no use to protest someone's house rules when you are playing with them in their home. You just have to accept it. It may change the game. It requires you to think differently about strategy, but it will be the only way that that game works. And I mention this because I think that Paul is trying to say something similar to his friends in the church in Corinth in that part of the letter that we just read and heard together. Only it's not about a game. It's about absolutely everything. If you let me put it like this, Paul is telling his friends that the resurrection of Jesus has changed the house rules, and nothing, nothing is the same. As Paul puts it, behold, the new has come. They, they live, Paul says, in a new creation. And he's telling his friends, you, you yourselves are new creations. And so now you have a brand new way to live in this world. There is no use living by the old rules anymore because they don't apply. You need to have new eyes to see and a new way of being in this world. And this is a good word for us too here this morning because we live in that same new world. And taking on a new way of being isn't easy. If, if it was, Paul wouldn't have written about it. It takes practice. And that practice is part of what it means for people like us to grow up as Christians. So this notion that they are in a new world, that everything has changed, is exactly what Paul's getting at when he starts by saying, from from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that the way he thinks about absolutely everyone around him has completely changed. Now, we'll talk about what that means in a minute, but it would probably be helpful to know why is Paul saying this. Even though Paul had founded the church in Corinth, his relationship to them at this point is under threat. His his relationship with them had always been tricky. 
Um, At times they treated him with affection. At other times they treated him with open disdain. And this letter that we call 2 Corinthians is probably the fourth letter that he wrote to them about what's going on in the church and in particular about his relationship to them. And here's what's happened. At this point, some other teachers have moved into that little church at Corinth and they had undercut Paul. They had told that church at Corinth essentially that Paul's life was filled with too much suffering and too much trouble to be the kind of teacher that they really needed. They saw all of Paul's suffering, all of his prison time, for instance, all of the beatings that he had undergone in his life, all of the insults and trouble that were hurled at him by the powers of the day. They saw all of that stuff as evidence of Paul's weakness and of Paul's ineffectiveness. What these new teachers were saying is, listen, church, here's what you really need. You need people with magnetic personalities. You need people who have displayed a whole lot more flash and power and strength, kind of like us, like we have. Paul, that guy is a loser. What you need in your life are some winners. And in a world without the cross... And the resurrection of Jesus, that way of looking at things might make some sense. Right? And in a closed world where what you see is what you get and that is all that there is, who would really ever make space in their life if they could avoid it for weakness? Who, who would ever willingly endure suffering for someone else's good? I mean, if a closed world is the world we live in, why wouldn't you do everything that you could to just amass personal power and strength and influence and to insulate yourself as much as you can with everything that you have from trouble? doesn't sound like it's that foreign of an impulse. What was true in the first century is true in our world, and it was really, really compelling to those young Christians in that church. But Paul knows that we don't live in a world that's closed. He knows that we don't live in a world without the cross and resurrection of Jesus. We live in a world where the cross and resurrection of Jesus are the deepest truth. And that changes everything. Beginning with how we look at the people around us. When Paul says that he doesn't regard anyone according to the flesh anymore, that we ought not to regard anyone according to the flesh anymore, he's not saying that we don't see people as human or see people as physical. What he's saying is that he doesn't think about people like he used to. He doesn't treat them like he used to, according to an old set of values and according to an old set of priorities that are for an old world that is fading away. Paul says, listen, I I even used to think about Jesus like this. I even used to regard Jesus like this. And if you know Paul's story at all, then you know how he thought about Jesus. He thought about Jesus as a weak, dishonored fool and blasphemer whose followers should be stamped out by whatever means necessary. This this is pretty much Paul's full-time job. He is stamping out the followers of Jesus. And for Paul... The cross was exactly what Jesus deserved for his crimes. But then he meets the risen Jesus. He meets Jesus on this road outside of Damascus. That'd be worth taking the time to read this afternoon from Acts 9. And there's lots and lots of things that can be said about that moment between Paul and Jesus. But I just want to mention two of them. 
First is the obvious one, and that is that when Paul sees Jesus, he realizes that Jesus is very much alive. Now, Paul does not have a category for this in his view of the world, and so that means that when Paul sees Jesus, his view of the world is shattered. And he has to take on new categories. He realizes in that moment that he is not living in the world that he thought he was living in. It dawned on him that he was living in a new world, in a new creation. And the second thing about that moment may not be as obvious, but it is incredibly important. And that is that the risen Jesus does not crush Paul out there on that road. (laughs) I can imagine certainly that Paul might have expected that that was what was about to happen as he is blind and cowering on the road in front of the risen Jesus. But Jesus had not come to wipe Paul out. He had come to make Paul a new man. He meets Paul with forgiveness and he gives him a job to do. And I don't doubt for a minute that that was the beginning of Paul rethinking absolutely everything. He realizes in that instant, that the cross was a wildly different thing than what he had thought it was. Jesus was not paying for his own crimes. He was paying for Paul's crimes. Paul experiences the self-giving love and the boundless grace of Jesus, and it becomes for him the truth around which he orders all of his life and all of his work. So he knows the truth of what he is about to say from the inside out. Paul says, listen, church, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Paul wants his friends in this church not only to hear that and believe it, he wants them to live out the truth of it. Everything has changed because of the cross and because of the resurrection, and they need to begin to live out that change starting with how they view others, and in particular, how they view him. And of course, the same is true for you and for me. People can no longer be viewed through the lens of what they might be able to give me. People can no longer be viewed through the lens of what they could potentially take away from me. People are not commodities sprinkled around in my environment from which I can pick and choose to add to my own personal portfolio of power or prestige or influence. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus means that we are called to to look at and to live with people the same way God looks at and lives with us, with compassion and with grace and with self-giving love. And growing up as a Christian means moving away from the old way of thinking about people and the old way of living with people and being with them to this new way that God has shown us. All of this, Paul says, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Then he says that same thing a second time, a little bit differently, just to make sure that he's heard and hopefully understood. He says that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus, Paul is saying, they were about reconciliation, 
This is what Paul is saying to that church and to us. He's saying God looked at this fallen world and all of the chaos in it and all of the violence and discord and brokenness and shame and pain. He looked at that fallen world and his response was not to abandon this world. His response was not to make another better world. His response was to reconcile this world, his world, to himself. Paul is telling them, look, he looked at fallen people just like us with all of our sin and rebellion and pettiness and violence and our exploitation of others and treating them like commodities. He looked at people like us and his response was not to abandon us, not to look for another group of people who might show more promise. His response was not even to wait until we got our act together and came to him. His response was to reconcile us, his people, to himself. And he did that by removing every, every last thing that caused the estrangement in the first place. Paul explains how this estrangement was removed by talking about it in a couple different ways. First, he says, because of what a Jesus accomplished in the cross and the resurrection, God has simply stopped counting our trespasses against us. He stopped doing it. As he puts it in his letter to the Colossian church, this record of debt that stood against us has been set aside. It has been nailed to the cross for good, and it is to never be seen again. And if we rest our faith in Jesus, these things, we can be sure that these things that loomed over our heads, that caused that estrangement between us and God, and that causes estrangement between everything else in our world, that these things are forgiven. As Paul says it, in this beautiful and succinct statement of what it is to be a Christian. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. He takes our rebellion and he gives us his fidelity. He takes our faithlessness and he gives us his faithfulness. In the words of that old hymn, this is precisely the double cure that people like you and I need. Not only forgiveness, but also a new way of life, a new way to live, a new way to be. And Jesus' church, he didn't do this reluctantly. He did it gladly. He did it, as Paul says, for our sake. But the story doesn't end there. Paul wants the church to know that this, this idea of reconciliation doesn't end there. It starts there for sure, but it doesn't end there. You know, one of my favorite things about the resurrection accounts that are in the Gospels is that Jesus is always telling people to go away. <laughs> You can read them this afternoon and you'll see in every one of these resurrection accounts, you'll see it again and again and again. There's always this beautiful, deeply personal moment where whoever is with Jesus gets to talk to him or touch him or see him or even eat with him. But then he is always telling people, now you have something to do. Get out of here. Go and do this thing that you have been called to do. He's always sending people off with a job. And that is because the power of the resurrection is a propulsive power. 
certainly how Paul experienced it when he was on the road outside of Damascus. Jesus said, listen, Paul, you're going to be my chosen instrument. You are going to take my name in front of the whole world. So Paul reminds the church at Corinth and he reminds us that if we have experienced the double cure of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, then we will also have work to do in this world. We have been given the message of reconciliation. We are the ambassadors of Jesus. And in a million years, even though we would never dream it would happen this way, God makes his appeal to the world through us. The propulsive power of the resurrection means that we as a church and we as individuals are called into the places in the world where there is chaos. We are called to walk into the places in this world where there is pain and estrangement. We're called to walk into the places in this world where there is hatred, where the alienation is so clear and so evident, where the resentments are inflamed. We are called to walk into those places with the good news of the reconciliation that Jesus offers the world. We're called to walk into those places, church, and to use the things that we have been given— Right? Whatever it is, our, our time, our money, our gifts, our skills, our creativity, our smarts, we are called to go into those places and use what we have to make the kingdom of Jesus more and more present, to plant flags of reconciliation, to plant flags of resurrection wherever we go. As Wendell Berry put it so provocatively, we are called to practice resurrection. For some of us, that work needs to happen in our families. For others of us, we may also be called to do that work of reconciliation, of planting flags of resurrection someplace in our city or somewhere else in this world. But there can be no mistake, to follow Jesus is to follow him into that work in this world. So to what work of resurrection, (laughs) to what work of reconciliation are you called? Because the power of the resurrection is a propulsive power. So where are you headed next? Where are we headed next? This is what Paul is getting at when he urges his friends not to have received the grace of God in vain. He says, today is the day. This is the day of new creation. This is the favorable time. And we are called along with them to live out the truth of the resurrection and the reality of the resurrection wherever we find ourselves. Let me pray for us. Father, I ask that you would give us the eyes to see clearly, (laughs) that you would give us whatever it is that we need to be able to see clearly your love, your grace, your mercy to us in Jesus and to believe that we have indeed been reconciled to you. And I ask, Father, that by the power of your Spirit, you would give us everything that we need as a church, as families, as individuals, to live out this resurrection life wherever we are. Father, do that for our good, and do that for the good of this broken and hurting world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.